Hello everyone and you're very welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula 1 podcast. My name is Thomas Marr and I'm joined by Dieter Rankin, Formula 1 journalist and Mike Seymour as well of RacingNews365.com. Gentlemen, you're very welcome along to the show. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back from Turkey. It really is. It was a cracking weekend. A lot of action. Um, it's, it's a great, a really, really great event. Um, let's get stuck straight into chatting about the Turkish Grand Prix because, of course, it was held on the weekend. We were supposed to have the Japanese Grand Prix. But in the end, the uh, weekend in Istanbul played out very similarly weather-wise to what we saw last year. And it ended up throwing up a little bit of a slow burner of a race eater. But uh, huge implications in the championship with Lewis Hamilton finishing down in fifth, but Max Verstappen finishing in second place. Uh, absolutely. But you say it was a slow burner. There was sort of action all the way down there, down the field. I mean, the the cameraman, the, the producers couldn't have had a single board second uh, uh, during that race. I mean, you know, wherever we were looking, there was some kind of duel going on. The conditions were, were constantly changing. Uh, there was intrigue about pit stops with the intermediates last. When would they switch over to, to slicks? I mean, it, it really was a cracking two hours. Well, let's start, I suppose, by chatting about, I think, what is the main talking point from that race, Dieter. And that is the strategy call from Mercedes. We saw um, pretty much around lap 40 or so, we saw the Red Bulls come in. They were called in for a fresh set of intermediates and they reaped the benefits of those intermediates a little bit later on in the race. But Lewis Hamilton, he went against the grain, decided not to pit when Mercedes originally told him to. And eventually that came back to bite him later on in the race when eventually he did pit. So put yourself in Lewis Hamilton's shoes, Dieter. What would you have done? Um, I would like to believe, and I think this is the, the key term I like to, because obviously it's impossible to know what feel Lewis had on the wheels uh, you know, the, uh, he was he was obviously driving using his fingertips. He had a uh, he had some kind of gut feel about the level of grip. Uh, let's not forget that last year he did very very similar and managed to win the race. Uh, let's not forget that in Sochi two weeks ago he basically went against the team call and won. So you know, under the circumstances, I kind of believe that. Lewis felt that he would be making the right call, that the guys in the pit wall didn't know exactly what the level of grip was. Yeah, they could look at it from data. Yeah, they could look at it in terms of lap times, comparing them to others. But did they really know exactly what sort of levels of grip there were? And I'm sure that he thought, no, they don't. What they did do was they were able to project the sort of tyre wear, the graining, etc. And of course, that was something that he couldn't do. And I think that is really where the, the sort of conflict between them arose. But I would like to believe that had I been in Lewis's shoes, I would actually have trusted the team and said, OK, guys, you've got all the data. Um, we work as a team. Let me do what you, what, what you suggest. Mike, do you think there was an element of Lewis, you know, maybe wanting to rep- try to replicate the success of previous calls where he's ignored the team uh, rather than, than trusting the bigger picture that the, the team are able to offer him? Possibly. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult situation, always tough to, to make the right call in the heat of the moment with, with these things. First of all, I want to say, echoing Dieter's comments about the race, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought... It was tense from start to finish, all of these different factors at play. 
and obviously Lewis's charge through the the uh, the field. Um, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, obviously, um, I feel he probably should have pitted with the other front runners, you know, mid lap, uh, yeah, mid lap thirties. Um, but obviously, he he felt like he needed to do something different to make up ground. Uh, the big problem was that risk clearly became too risky in Mercedes's eyes when that first set really started to drop off. It was yeah late lap 40s where you know, a very good position turned into a, a precarious one with the, the rate that those um, initial intermediates dropped off. So with the time he was losing to Gasly and Norris behind at that, at that stage, he really had to come in. Um, Hamilton didn't have the full picture at that stage behind the wheel. A lot of back and forth on the radio. Didn't like what he heard. Um, who knows what would have happened exactly in the closing laps if he'd stayed out. But it, it was clear, as I say, the drop-off was there. You only have to look at um, Ocon as well, the only driver to make it to the end on that initial set of intermediates. That the, the pace was gone and several seconds would have been thrown away each lap. So... Very difficult in, in the heat of the moment. I think, as, as Toto Wolff said, post-race, what Mercedes could have done is uh, followed the other front, uh, front runners earlier in the race, got him in onto those fresh intermediates and, and see what, what could have been done. But I think with Lewis in that kind of recovery mode and trying to make up lost ground, he was obviously in a determined mood and, and wanted as much as possible. And in the end, being exactly where he wouldn't have wanted, which is caught in no man's land and, and not really working out. Dieter, let's rewind, though, back to the start of the weekend, because on paper, this was a weekend that Lewis Hamilton probably should have romped away to the win, with uh, Mercedes even claiming a 1-2, if he hadn't had to take that engine penalty. It was inevitable that he was going to have to take that penalty at some point over the last couple of races. But do you think Mercedes made a mistake by taking it at a track where they seem to have such a pace advantage? Uh, possibly, but then again, one does know all the facts and all the factors. But I think the important thing here, um, uh, Thomas, is to realise that by having taken the engine change, uh, he had actually had a power unit which was substantially better in the performance stakes. Would he have had pole position with the old engine? Uh, we don't know, but I doubt it. Would he have been able to run as quickly during the race as he did with the old engine? We don't know, but again, I doubt it. But I think the, the, the other factor here is, is that they had to take it at some stage. Let's have a look at you know what's coming up. Qatar and uh, Jeddah are two completely unknown circuits, um, and even the best simulations couldn't tell you exactly where he would stand. Abu Dhabi's been substantially modified which would have left basically Austin, um, uh, uh, Mexico and um, uh, Brazil. Brazil is probably going to be a wet race, but we don't know. And and so I guess they sort of thought, well, last year we did perform very well here. Lewis was top of his game. Let's take it here. Uh, equally, I, I do believe that, that Lewis looked at the Sochi outcome and said, Max started from the back all the way from the back, in other words, and he finished second. I'm, in, I'm only going down to 10th. I should also be able to finish second. Even if Max wins, it's, it's not a train smash. Um, as it turned out, um, it, things just didn't work out his way. 
Mike, there was a moment when Pete Bonington got on the radio to Lewis and when Lewis asked what position he was in and you could almost hear fear in in Pete's voice when when he was saying, you're in P5, Lewis. Mm. Do you think Mercedes maybe need to be a little bit more forceful with Lewis on the radio, um, given that he is kind of prone to ignoring the the pit calls sometimes? Um, Do you think his his status as a seven-time world champion has made them maybe a little bit fearful to to assert their authority over him? Um, I I think overall they've got a a very good relationship. Um, It's a difficult one. I mean, Hamilton's got... A lot of experience. He's a seven-time world champion. He's, on the whole, very good at, at judging these situations. But I think Russia was a good example of, uh, with, with the late rain shower, where teams do have this additional information at their disposal, um, and and at times it can really make the difference. So obviously, uh, in Lewis's situation on Sunday, with the state of the tyres and in particular uh, the time drop off uh, how much he was losing to Gasly and Norris behind he wouldn't have necessarily known that in the moment obviously there was a lot of back and forth over the radio um, but it, it's just one of those situations where the the driver Lewis being in a very determined um, mood he was he was chasing a podium and obviously had his own thoughts in the situation um, but it's a conversation that they'll have. I mean, already in in uh, Lewis's post race media session after the the heat of the moment and and things had settled down a little bit, he already mentioned having that conversation with the team. Things making a bit more sense. And then um, his social media statement this morning. I think it's just a classic example of heat of the moment. The driver knowing what they want to do, and then. Um, the the team having a little bit more information at hand. So you can always learn. Um, As I say, Lewis is very experienced. Mercedes uh, at the same time. Um, So many championships behind them. But there are always things that can be done better and it's another conversation that they can have and then try and improve things even more going forward. Dieter, what do you think of that situation? Well, basically, I think we need to accept that Lewis is a seven-time world champion, but equally, we need to accept that he's a seven-time world champion because for the last seven years or so, the team has made the right calls. And that's why he's seven-time world champion, not that he's done it on his own. He's actually had the support of one of the best teams in the business. And, and accordingly, I think that yesterday he should again have given them the benefit if he had any doubt. So, Dieter, do you think a safe third place went begging for Lewis as a result of his um, ignoring the, the team instruction? Uh, Thomas, no, I don't. You know, I analysed it yesterday afternoon during the race. I thought about it again on the aeroplane back from, from Turkey today. I do believe that had he reacted immediately, uh, that he would probably have finished fourth. Um, and had he not reacted at all and stayed out, he would probably have finished sixth. So I think that fifth place is a fair reflection of the sort of doubts that he had going backwards and forwards, the discussions with uh, with Pete Bonington, etc. So, but I don't believe that he was going to be on the podium. I, I think that, frankly, you know, one of the factors we've overlooked is that before this, Yuki Tsunoda had really held him up. If you looked at the gap. 
You know, it started at something like nine or ten seconds, and by the time that he passed Yuki, we were talking sort of 20-odd seconds. So, um, you know, he lost ten seconds then. I think that would have made the difference because let's not forget, those ten seconds would have put him ahead of, of Checo Perez um, uh, when they were having their duel. That duel wouldn't have happened. He would have been well ahead of him. And I think that is where Lewis probably lost the podium. So um, I think that that the Red Bull group, Oyuki, a big vote of thanks. There was quite a, a lot of actual Red Bull interference with, with um, Lewis's race with Yuki and Sergio fighting back very hard against him as well. But also Red Bull uh, pulling the trigger quite early on that switch to the intermediates. They were amongst the, the first of the front runners to to commit uh, to putting on that second set of intermediates and it worked out really really well for them now on a weekend where they clearly didn't have the outright pace Dieter how important was it to salvage second and third with Max and Sergio I don't think it was important I believe it was absolutely crucial they had to they had to you know to keep Max's championship hopes realistically alive they had to to still be in a shout in the Constructors' Championship, they had to. And, you know, I think that given the, um, the car disadvantage that Red Bull suffered this weekend in, in Turkey, I believe that they really went into maximum damage limitation mode, and I think they succeeded. But I'd just like to go back to your earlier comment about there seemed to be a lot of uh, Red Bull interference when it came to Lewis's race. Well, maybe there was, but equally, there was an awful lot of Mercedes support, or that's what it looked like from my side. You know, the way that he just sailed straight past Lance Stroll. I mean, the, the car before him had been Yuki, who held uh, Lewis up for eight laps. And when he caught Lance, he was straight past within a corner. And, you know, I, I wondered whether there was any kind of, of, of tacit collusion there. The same with Lando? Uh, basically, yes. But Dieter, why do you think it was that the Red Bull simply didn't look all that fast this weekend? I think there, there are various factors here. I think the first one is that, you know, the the phrase horses for courses applies. And I think in this particular case, it just didn't suit the Red Bull package in total. I do believe that Mercedes somehow have found some some extraordinary grunt when it comes to to straight line. And the, the, the Istanbul circuit is rather strange in that it doesn't have lots of long straights, but it's got straights where the power uh, is decisive. And I think that that's basically what happened. It's a bit of a strange circuit. It's not an out-and-out power circuit, but it's enough of a power circuit. It's not an out-and-out handling circuit, but it's enough of a handling circuit. Um, And it's got all the undulations and whatever. And, of course, these make a big difference. If you've got a a grunt advantage and you're carrying full tanks um, early on in the race, you know, that, that grunt helps you on the undulations, the uphills and downhills, because that's where you really get punished when, you, when you're traveling on four tanks. I think that Mercedes just had the better package. And I think that's borne out by the fact that both Lewis and, and um, Valtteri effectively took the first two slots in qualifying. Mike, Max Verstappen's race was, was pretty quiet by, by his standards. He, he didn't quite have the pace to match, uh, to match Valtteri Bottas out front. But um, he, he played it safe, came home in second. But it's Sergio Perez that, that really stood out to me as being a, a standout performer, bouncing back a little bit, I think, from a, a, a bad run of mid-season races. How impressed were you by, by Checo's performance this weekend? Yeah, it was very much needed. Um, he said after the race that it had been many, many races um, you know, in the works, this result, a podium finish. Definitely needed it. Red Bull needed it uh, in terms of the 
constructors championship max needed it in terms of the drivers championship so very important all round uh he did look a bit more comfortable in general um compared to max this weekend obviously the red bull having a pace deficit to the mercedes but it just seemed like a better weekend from from start to to finish for for Sergio, and uh, yeah, very important that he got on the podium and and supported Max and pretty much did what he should have been doing all season. Uh, it was kind of a race of the second drivers with with Valtteri winning for Mercedes as well. So it, obviously Max and Red Bull will be very much hoping that that Sergio can keep that form moving forward, but. Just as a kind of side note to that, I think two emotions for Red Bull here. Obviously, very satisfied of how they've come away from Monza, Sochi, Istanbul, um, kind of limiting the damage and, and doing more than that in some cases uh, on Mercedes circuits. Um, but then the concern, as Dieter touched on, the step that Mercedes seem to have found, uh, the straight line speed advantage you look at some of the circuits coming up uh, it could well be pivotal in, in the title race so i think a mixture of uh, satisfaction of how they've maximized their uh, results over the last few races at mercedes venues but then uh, looking at what mercedes have done in terms of the straight line speed whatever's going on with their engine um reliability issues aside so it's a fascinating uh, picture for the remaining six races Dieter I was actually quite amused by uh, the battle between Sergio and Lewis because obviously it, it was tremendous wheel to wheel racing but the, the body language of the car of Sergio's car while he was racing Lewis it screamed to me I am literally paid to hold you up I am not letting you pass your buckle and uh, I, I thought that was quite funny um, what did you make of that battle? Could you see the, the mental process that, that Perez was going through as he battled with Lewis? I could certainly see Checo thinking, man, if I screw this one up, uh, the team will never forgive me. And, you know, I think that that was um, uh, Checo's mindset. But equally, you say that, I think that, that um, Valtteri had a very similar mindset where he was saying, I need to stay ahead of Max for Lewis's sake. Of course, Valtteri knew this is probably the last chance that he's going to have of a, a Grand Prix win, all things being equal, um, uh, because, you know, next year he goes to Alfa Romeo, and I think it's it's doubtful whether he's actually going to win with them next year or, or whenever. So, uh, you know, I think Valtteri knew that this is his last chance, but he also knew that I've got to win this one for Lewis. I've got to win it for the team. So I think the same sort of thought process applied to both those drivers. So Verstappen then moves back into a six-point lead in the World Championship as a result. So how important do you think that's going to be, Dieter, as we head into the final six races now of the championship? Is there any reason to believe that the, the momentum has, has left Red Bull, seeing as the, the development path has, has kind of ended now for 2021? The engines are, are largely frozen. Where do you see it going from here? Um, well, first of all, you know, six-point lead with six races to go is nothing. There are 150 points to play for. Uh, secondly, I don't believe that the engine advantage um, is will be decisive over the, the remaining six races. I think it was peculiar here. I think Mercedes do have a small engine advantage, but equally, I believe that Red Bull do have a chassis advantage. 
And I think there's going to be some to and fro over the next six races. We don't know, as I said earlier on, exactly how the teams will fare on the two new circuits, Qatar and Jeddah, which are completely different uh, in character. I mean, the one is a effectively a MotoGP circuit, and the other one's a street circuit that nobody's ever seen that was cobbled together in a big hurry. Um, and then, of course, you've got the changes in, in Abu Dhabi. So, yeah, I, I don't believe that there's any cause for concern. I do believe that there is cause for for absolute maximum attack on both sides. Yeah, but I don't believe that anybody could turn around now and say, oh, Red Bull have lost it. You know, we, we, we said this after... Um, after the, the, the Spa and, um, and Zandvoort run. And look where we are again now. Mike, have you anything to, to add to that? It's too close to call. That's what I'll say. <laughs> um, Dieter, you, you touched on something there uh, about the unknowns of a couple of the, the next couple of circuits. Given that Pirelli seemed to be somewhat caught out by the uh, Turkey um, track surface with, with the water blasting treatment that the, the tarmac went through. Do you think there's any potential that Pirelli might be caught out by maybe one of the, the circuits that we're heading off to later on in the calendar, such as Qatar or, or Saudi Arabia? Could that play a factor? Well, I, I don't think that we should ever look at it as Pirelli being caught out. I think what could happen is that whatever tyre choices they have based on whatever whatever information they have at any one time, could play more to one team than to another. That I think is a likely scenario, but we don't know which direction it's gonna go. Will it will it favor Red Bull? Will it favor Mercedes? Will it actually pan out equally? You know, will the one Qatar, for example, favor one and um, Saudi Arabia another? So we, we really don't know. There are unknown factors. One thing I want to, to bring up, and this, this ties in with, with the new races that we're going to have between now and the end of the season, is the fact that the 2022 calendar looks like it's, uh, well, it is going to be 23 races uh, scheduled for next season. Now, Franz Tost, the Alpha Tauri boss, he made comments over the weekend about uh, the 23 race calendar, about how uh, anyone who's working in Formula One should lump it. They're, they're not exactly his words, but he, he basically said that, um, you know, everyone should appreciate the fact that they're able to go uh, do 23 races, ignoring the fact that maybe staff are away from home for, for weeks, if not months at a time. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Dieter. 23 races is a lot in one year. Right, Thomas. I think, you know, obviously um, I was in that press conference when, when France said it. I could also see his body language, etc. I think the important thing to remember is that one of the things that sets a, a job in Formula One apart from the rest is that there is generally far more passion for the product than there is if you work, for example, for a bank or whatever. Um, you know, it really is a passion-driven uh, environment. People are there generally because they um, they are passionate motorsport fans, and they've decided to devote their their careers to to this passion. Now, um, you know, and I do tend to agree with France that you know they're a racing team, and their job is to go racing. And you try and go racing as much as you can. You try and run the business at maximum level. And that means as many races as you can actually do. And I think one of the areas is that as Formula One has become more and more corporate, so it's been forced to go outside the sort of normal 
pool of passionate people. When I say passionate, I mean really, really passionate. People who are prepared to sacrifice whatever to work in Formula One. And I think that we do have, in many instances, people who profess to love Formula One, tell you how much they enjoy it. But are they really racist deep down? I very often have my doubts. You know, I see people walking around the paddock and I just get the feeling that they're there because it's a job and they could be doing the same job somewhere else, selling shoes or whatever the case may be. And I think the point that, that France is making is that if you want to work in Formula One, you have to accept that there will be pressures, there will be some abnormal working hours, abnormal conditions, and it's up to the employees to work out whether or not they actually want to be there and whether it's worth the sacrifices. You know, you, you have people who work on, on, on oil rigs. They're they gone from home for months on end. You have people on ships. They're gone from home for months on end. Um, they also have families and homes and whatever, but they've chosen that, that career and they put up with the, the sacrifices because that's how they earn their living. And, you know, I, I've worked in the corporate environment before. First of all, um, I, I wanted desperately to get into Formula One, which is why I made the change. But apart from that, you know, I, I had some, some jobs that involved an awful lot of travel. I was away at one stage for 11 weeks with only about five or six nights in between where I was home. We were launching a new range of, of trucks. And I traveled South Africa for 11 weeks. And literally, I was I, I used to come home, pack a suitcase, go back to the airport. If I was lucky, I had a night or two at home. And this was part of it. And, and you know, I, I really do believe that France has got a point. He may have expressed it rather harshly. But, yeah, if you want to work in Formula One, you've got to take the, the rough with the smooth. So, Dieter, how much of this do you think is down to the, the creeping, insidious nature of, of adding races to the calendar? Because, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was 16, maybe 17 races on the calendar. That became 18. Then then, then there was the, uh, the the milestone of 20 races. Now it's 23. The Concord Agreement allows for up to 24 in a year. At what point, Dieter, is there just too many races? Thomas, I think, first of all, we need to accept that um, although the calendar a couple of years back, 10 years back, was sort of 16 races, there was non-stop testing. So, you know, the, it, it literally, um, if we took the number of working days in a Grand Prix season now compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I'm, I'm actually convinced that there were more working days. There may not be racing days, but there were more working days away from home then than there are now. So, so Thomas, basically, you know, I, I honestly believe that Formula One personnel, um, regardless of whatever position or job they hold within Formula One, do uh, are better off today than they were 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and if we go back in history, I mean, a, a very good friend of mine, Cedric Seltzer, was the uh, the chief mechanic to Jim Clark when they won the World Championship in 1963. I recall Cedric saying to me that they had 22 races uh, that year. They weren't all World Championship races, but ultimately they were still sort of the three, four-day events, very similar to now. Um, and sometimes they travelled by ship to Australia. You had the Tasman series down there. You had non-championship races in Mexico. You had non-championship races in South Africa, uh, in, in America. So, you know, and nowadays people fly 
Um, a lot of them fly business class. They're staying in very good three, four-star hotels. Back in the day, I mean, Cedric said to me one day he stepped in the truck occasionally. And um, yeah, as, as I said, uh, as, as the lead-in, Formula One should be a passion-driven business. That doesn't mean that one has to rip people off because of their passion, but certainly I believe that if they want to work in a sort of passion environment, that they do need to take the rough with the smooth. It's a lot, for sure. I mean, as with most things, there are two sides to this situation. Sounds obvious to say. Um, but as Dieter has already explained, you know, F1 is a, a unique world. It's not a nine-to-five job with standard weekends. And for every job within the sport, there'll be hundreds of people around the world who would do anything to be in that position. Um, so there is that argument for uh, for having to go the extra mile and so on. Um, at the same time, I think the recent calendar expansion and the, the, the fundamental calendar um, races being added and added, um, it's not surprising to hear team members and others in the paddock expressing concerns. Uh, there's no getting away from it. It is a huge amount of time to be away from, from family and friends and also different circumstances to consider. I think it doesn't help when words such as, if you don't like it, you know, stay at home, come from uh, the, the kind of top level in teams who will more often than not be flying first class or even taking private jets, staying in posh hotels. Um, they're not at the track all day, every day for a week, building up to the to the Grand Prix. Um, so I don't think that really helps. Um, but kind of leading on from this, I think F1's medium long term plan, and this is from a conversation that I had with Dieter recently. Um, F1's plan in terms of the sprint races and how they're incorporated um, more and more over the coming years, and the kind of 20 race calendar with 10 of those featuring sprint races um i feel like that could work really well going forward on two sides you're you're limiting the fundamental travel throughout the year you've still got a very solid number of core grand prix um and then you've got that added intrigue the extra of sprint races at, at certain weekends um but they're all contained within the calendar so you're limiting the travel, you're adding more races overall. Um, so it should be a better balance for, for teams and, and, and staff. And it's also a more sustainable way of doing things. And that has to be a consideration uh, with, with the state of the world as it is. So um, that, that'll be interesting to follow going forward. But as I say, two sides to any situation. And uh, I think in this case, it just didn't help that the comments came from uh, kind of top of the tree, if you want to put it like that. Dieter, is that the sustainable solution then to to go down the route of maybe 20 Grand Prix weekends, have 10 sprint races, so there's 30 races overall? Would that be a good balance where, you know, fans aren't be getting an oversaturated product, uh, there isn't that same level of, of staff burnout, and it also keeps the uh, race promoters happy? Um, well, you know, I've, I've always said since the, the sprint qualifying concept was first aired, I've always said that the answer is actually to go for 20 plus 10. I realize that uh, a lot of fans don't like the sprint qualifying um, concept, 
But equally, let's not forget that Formula One does need to feed all these staff who are currently complaining about the working hours. You know, without 20, 23 races or whatever, um, the income would be a lot uh, less. If the income is a lot less, team budgets are less. If team budgets are less, they employ less people. It stands to reason. You can't, on the one side, um, expect to employ all these people in a Formula One team, and then on the other side say, well, I know we make money out of races, but let's just halve the number of races. Then half the number of people are going to lose their jobs. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just logical. So, you know, possibly the the the, um, the numbers aren't in that proportion, but but you understand the point that I'm getting at here. And and equally, if we do have sprint qualifying, and if the promoters are prepared to pay the extra to 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 have a sprint qualifying event, then that maybe is the economic solution and also the human factor solution. Do you think this like it or lump it attitude though has the uh, the potential to generate Formula One into a very short term career where you only have kind of uh, young men, young women, maybe wanting to do a few years of, of travel with Formula One, but maybe don't want to commit to, to the long term um, side of their careers as, you know, they want to have families, maybe stay at home a little bit more often. Do you think that there's a danger where you, you'll only have engineers and, and personnel for a couple of years at most? Well, first of all, most of the engineers um, in a Formula One team uh, don't travel. You know, we have a look at it, uh, Thomas. The uh, the number of travelling staff at the moment is about eighty to ninety per team. Yet the teams are employing six, seven, eight hundred people. So we're talking about fifteen percent are travelling. So honestly, with all due respect, I don't fully understand where the problem lies. You know, if you want to work in a Formula One team, if you want to be an engineer or a marketeer or a whatever, there are plenty of opportunities without traveling. So another story we broke on racingnews365.com over the weekend, heading into the Turkish Grand Prix weekend, Dieter, um, was you finding out that Michael Andretti uh, looking at buying the Sauber Formula One team. What can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, I think it's it's well known that that Michael has been trying to get into Formula One with his um, Andretti Autosports group uh, for for a while. I mean, um, three years ago, he was one of the bidders for Force India. Admittedly, his bid was a bit light, but yeah, he certainly showed an interest in it. Um, he has been been sniffing around Formula One for a while. Let's not forget that Formula One to the Andretti family is is kind of unfinished business when it comes to team ownership. And it's also very much unfinished business for Michael, who, of course, was um, a, a McLaren Formula One driver in 1993 and didn't exactly excel. I mean, there were various reasons. He insisted on staying in the US and he was flying across to Europe for each race, etc. Um, and, and also, I think that uh, that particular season was a very, very difficult season for somebody coming in. Uh, so Michael didn't exactly cut it, but uh, he still he still has this interest, this burning desire to be a Formula One team owner. And you know, obviously, with a two hundred million anti dilution fee that Formula One insists on, probably in my opinion, the one of the most myopic decisions that the sport has ever taken was this two hundred million anti dilution fee. But be that as it may, it's it's in the the um, the agreements at the moment. And therefore, it's a fact of life that if you'd like to get into Formula One between now and the end of 2025, you either buy a team or you shell out 200 million to your competitors. 
So, you know, Michael obviously had a look around. Um, he missed out on Force India. He missed out on um, Williams when they were for sale. Sauber could be for sale. Um, you know, the, the history of, of the uh, rousing family getting into Formula One is, is one of, um, uh, um, of coincidence uh, in that they lent money to the previous owners of Sauber uh, when they got into trouble. And, um, and so the, the debt uh, built up and eventually the, um, the rousing family through their company Longbow Finance converted debt to ownership. And so they were rather reluctant team owners, if I can put it to you that way. Sure, they're interested in Formula One. I mean, they'd backed uh, Marcus Ericsson, which was the initial contact with, with Sauber. But effectively, Formula One team ownership was never really part of the bigger picture. Uh, but then, of course, with this debt situation, they then became team owners. And I, I believe that the, the rousing family would like to look at this, this, um, this asset and see how best they could recover the, um, the investments that they've made. And if Andretti comes along and offers the right sort of money and possibly even takes a majority stake, but still allows a rousing family to be involved as, as minority shareholders, that's an ideal opportunity all around. Do you think this imminent sale process is what's holding up the, the last driver announcement at the Alfa Romeo team? Because that, that name, Colton Herta, is just not going away. It's not going away, but I think it's being pushed and punted very strongly by um, certain American outlets. Uh, does Colton Herta deserve to be in Formula One? I certainly believe he deserves to be considered for Formula One. But let's not forget that there is a massive difference between driving an Indy car and driving a Formula One car. And, you know, I don't believe that he's just a natural shoe and into a Formula One car. I think that he needs some acclimatization. If we go back in history, if we have a look at drivers who came across, uh, Michael Andretti being one, you know, he'd, he'd won the, the championship in the US, yet didn't take the Formula One. Alex Zanardi is another example. Um, you know, we can, we, we can, we can list them. And um, they are two totally different series. And the, the cars are different. The, uh, the circuits are completely different uh, to a large degree because of the ovals, etc. I don't believe that Colton Herta is an automatic shoe uh, as a Formula One driver. So the, I think Michael will be only too aware of his own career where he came along in 93 and just, frankly, didn't cut it. Is an Andretti purchase of the Sauber Group a good thing? I think any American interest in Formula One can only be good for Formula One. I think that a credible team owner like Michael, who let's not forget, has been extremely successful in all sorts of categories, not only IndyCar. You know, he's run the uh, the BMW Formula E team. Uh, they've been in, in Rallycross. They're in Extreme E. He's a partner of Zach Brown in a a winning supercar V8 team. So, you know, I think Michael is certainly credible. Uh, he's American, which would please Liberty, Formula One's current owners. Um, you know, I think he ticks a lot of boxes. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so from one US interest to another, the next race is the uh, United States Grand Prix, Dieter. And um, what's your opinion as we return to Kota uh, for the first time in two years? Who's it going to favour? Um, you know, Thomas, I've always said that if, if I really could predict the outcome of races, I'd be down at the bookmakers instead of writing about these things. 
So, uh, again, as we said earlier on, uh, this season is so unpredictable, so massively unpredictable. A lot of us thought that um, that Max was going to walk um, the Turkish Grand Prix. As it turned out, he didn't. As it turned out, nor did Lewis. And, in fact, uh, Valtteri did. And, you know, Christian Horner said to me on Saturday when I had a quick chat with him that this has been an incredibly unpredictable season and who knows what the next twist or turn is going to be. And I think that Kota could throw up yet another twist or turn. Mike, any predictions for, for Kota next time out? Uh, yeah, I mean, on paper, another Mercedes track. Uh, five of the last six wins um, with either Hamilton or Bottas. Bottas last time, obviously. However, uh, in 2019, less than a second between Hamilton and, and Verstappen at the finish. So what I'm really hoping for this time out is after a, you know, a few weekends dominated by engine penalties, it would be great to have a, another head-to-head between Max and Lewis this time out. So that's what I'm hoping for. Um, would, would really like to see that over the course of the weekend. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one to call. Um, Mercedes on paper, but Red Bull have up their game this season. So just another one to look forward to. Well, Dieter, hopefully you're able to get a, a day or two's downtime between now and the United States Grand Prix. And as usual, thank you very much for uh, all your insight and wisdom uh, from the paddock. And thank you for joining us on the RacingNews365.com podcast. Absolute pleasure as always, Thomas. Thank you. And you can follow Dieter on Twitter. It's at Racing Lines. Mike Seymour as well, Chief Editor of RacingNews365.com. Thank you very much for your contribution to the show as well. Thank you, Thomas. And you can follow Mike on Twitter as well, at Mike Seymour F1. I'm Thomas Marr, at Thomas Marr on F1 on Twitter if you want to give me a follow as well. The uh, RacingNews365.com Formula 1 podcast will return after the United States Grand Prix.